I grew up in a small town in the Ottawa Valley, and in my teen years, I had a friend whose mother owned a small restaurant. We hung out there a lot during the off hours, playing guitar and watching movies on the only big screen TV in town. On one occasion, we were watching Dr. Strangelove and were joined by an older chum of my friend who was currently attending university and was taking a film studies class. It didn't take long for him to start talking down to the two of us about films and Stanley Kubrick's work as a director and just generally being the sort of insufferable ass that ruins enjoyable things for people around them, as drunk as he was, on his own sense of self-importance. I remember asking him when he finally paused, why did you take a film class? Doesn't university offer a lot of options? He replied, oh, I love movies, so... Jumping on the moment, I said, really? It doesn't sound like it. Now, if you don't mind, I'm trying to watch a film here. He eventually shut up, and after that day, I never saw him again. But the memory of him stayed with me, and I thought, I never want to be that guy. I never want to study a thing I love to the point that I become an insufferable negative jerk about it. I'll never be that guy. A year and a half later, I was in university, majoring in film, and the irony was not lost on me, as I risked becoming what I beheld. Certainly, years of instruction and study helped my understanding greatly, and although it's fun to say these days, yeah, I went to school for film, it's not a majorly relevant reference point for my life today. Most of what I'm doing now, I would be doing even if I'd majored in English, or business, or music, or chemistry. But I would still remember that guy, long after I've forgotten his name, his face, or any distinguishing feature of his existence other than this terrible part of his personality sitting there ruining a movie for me because he saw himself as an expert. Now, decades later, I know, I accept, I embrace that I am not an expert. Just a guy who loves old movies. Hello, film historians. I'm Derek, and I love old movies. We've got Sam the Sidekick here. Hello, and welcome to episode seven of the podcast. Last week, things really got back on track with our episode on the Marx Brothers. We had some great views and comments and messages, so thanks for taking the time to check it out, and also for making a point of getting in touch with us. It's honestly really cool when you do that. That is a fact. And we really weren't sure, were we? Mm -mm. After the whole lawless breed debacle, it was a bit like... Whoops, did we drive our audience away? And it seems we haven't, at least not yet. And we even came out of last week's episode with some recommendations for films to look at. Definitely going to check out Tom Horn. Thanks for that one. And we even got a special request for a film for us to look at in a future episode. So look for that in episode 11. We should totally do that as much as possible going forward. Like, if people request we cover certain movies, let's do that. Oh, for sure. We want to be more interactive here, to give you, the listener, a chance to take part in what we do as much as possible. And the easiest way to do that is for you to get in touch with us. We promise we will reply. 
And, as always, we're on all the socials, so you can give us a shout there whenever you want. Absolutely. Let's tell them how. You can find us on the Facebook. I Love Old Movies, the podcast. The Instagram. I Love Old Movies, the podcast. Or send us an email. I Love Old Movies, the podcast at gmail.com. All one word. Oh, yeah. And if you would prefer to enjoy our podcast somewhere other than YouTube, there are a lot of audio-only options available now, including Anchor, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. We have all of this listed in our link tree, and we'll post that in the description of the show. So this was an interesting week for us, as we both went back to school. Obviously, there had been online learning and all that last spring, but this was the first time we had both returned to classes since April of last year, when schools in Ontario were closed due to COVID-19. It was a bit of a transition, but I was glad to be back. Yeah, I did not love teaching from home. I did not love taking physics at home. And now we don't have to. For now. Yeah. Fingers crossed on that. Uh, How about it, listeners? Have you had to go through any COVID-type transitions in life or work or school lately? Let us know in the comments. One thing for sure, this is something that we can all relate to. For Sam and I, when we started the podcast, we had very few outside pressures or time commitments. Dog days of August, y'all. So we are currently figuring out how best to manage things to keep the podcast running and on schedule. There might be a few tweaks here or there, but we want to keep the overall quality where it has been. If not better. If not better, yes. But you might have to bear with us a bit. We want to keep this going, so we've just got to get our logistics together. Yeah. We might wind up changing the release day for new episodes, but for now, we're sticking to Thursdays. And if that does change, we'll give you plenty of notice. But in the meantime, our countdown to the 10th episode spectacular continues. And our guest list grows. The debate for the positions of the actors to be placed on our Mount Rushmore of Horror will be quite an event. Mm -hmm. We already know that our first guest is my mom. My wife. We're keeping it in the family to start. (laughs) So yes, Nikki will be joining us on that show. And our second guest is Adam Martinetti. Adam is an actor, filmmaker, and music producer with a number of professional credits. And he might be best known currently as a content provider and video host for Collider.com. You know those videos where some cool guy in the know tells you all the scoop about upcoming films? Adam's that guy. And he will be our second guest on the 10th episode. Guest list shaping up. And more names to come next week. But about this week. Yes, about that. We'll be looking at a film that crosses genres a bit. A bit. Part musical, part comedy, part romance, and all teen exploitation. we are casting our gaze upon one of the first of the rock and roll films, Rock Around the Clock, from 1956. A viewing experience that combines two of my absolute favorite things, old movies and old rock and roll. This film fictionalizes the discovery of rock and roll music, using some of the actual performers credited with shaping the genre. No Elvis here, unfortunately. No, although that would have been something. But we do have featured appearances by Bill Haley and his Comets, The Platters, and Freddie Bell and his Bellboys. So get your rockabilly shoes and put your cat clothes on, because this is going to be some good rocking tonight. You were just dying to say that, weren't you? I wasn't sure how it was going to sound until I did, but yeah, and I'm glad. Our director for Rock Around the Clock is Fred F. Sears. 
Brad started out as a drama teacher at Southwestern University, where he was then hired as a dialogue director for Columbia Pictures in 1946. He played several bit roles in various productions until 1949, when he started directing the Charles Start Western Show, up until it was retired in 1952. Sam Katzman, an notoriously cheap producer, was impressed with how cheaply the show had been made while under Sears, and ended up recruiting Sears for the serial Blackhawk in 1952. Sears then began working full-time alongside Katzman, where he remained for the rest of his career. Between 1949 and 1957, Sears obtained an impressive 54 directing credits. He's probably best known for the sci-fi films Earth vs. the Flying Saucers in 1956 and The Giant Claw in 1957. He died in 1957 at the age of 45, and his last five movies were released after his death. Our writer is Robert E. Kent, who also went by the name James B. Gordon. He started out as a screenwriter for Sam Katzman, who he remained working alongside for seven years. Afterwards, he then started working as a producer for Edward Small, and then Kent went on to form his own production company, Admiral Productions, with fellow producer Small and film editor Grant Whitehawk. They ended up producing two horror movies with Vincent Price, as well as four westerns with Audie Murphy. Kent racked up 95 writing credits over a span of 33 years, but he was probably best known for Twice Told Tales in 1963. He died in 1984 at the age of 73. Obviously, the true star of Rock Around the Clock is the music, and the excellent collection of early-era performers. And although some of them even act in some scenes, the movie is anchored by experienced actors in the key roles. Johnny Johnson, an actor and nightclub singer, plays Steve Hollis. Johnson had a relatively short Hollywood career, appearing in only 19 productions, including musicals, shorts, and some television. Rock Around the Clock was actually his last film. There is nothing that could be remotely considered a hit on his resume otherwise, but as a singer, his career was far more successful. After an extensive career performing on radio in the 1930s, he was one of the first four acts signed to Capitol Records, recording huge hits with That Old Black Magic and Laura. In fact, he had three top ten hits in 1945 alone. The hits stopped coming quickly, and in the 1950s he opened a nightclub in New York City. His time in the limelight essentially over, Johnson died in 1996 at the age of 80. Our lead actress is Alex Talton, who plays Corrine Talbot. A former Miss Georgia from 1938, Talton was busy through the 40s and 50s with a series of bit parts and small roles in television and film, until her career began really slowing down in the 60s. Rarely a lead, she nevertheless appeared in some interesting films. She has a small part in the Humphrey Bogart film, In a Lonely Place, from 1950. Then, the same year as Rock Around the Clock was released, she turned up in the Alfred Hitchcock classic, The Man Who Knew Too Much. 1957 saw her turn up in the Schlocko sci-fi B-film, The Deadly Mantis, and her last film appearance was in 1968's The Devil's Brigade, an excellent war movie with William Holden. One of the World War II films the Canadian viewers can really take a special interest in. Check that one out if you can. And watch for Alex. She's one of those actresses from a different time, when you could just get discovered singing in a nightclub and sign to a movie contract and make a career for yourself playing the other woman type characters. You definitely don't get that every day. Not so much anymore, no. 
Her television credits included My Favorite Husband and The Vikings, among many others. Talton died in 1992 at the age of 72. Considered the first of the rock and roll films, Rock Around the Clock hit its audience with all of the furor and controversy that one would expect from anything associated with the music form that was, at the time, literally beginning to take the world by storm. Featuring appearances by top musical acts of the era, and no less a personality than Alan Freed lending a stamp of legitimacy, the film was a huge financial hit, earning over a million dollars in the U.S. alone against a budget of around 300000 the film was particularly impactful in England, where wild teens filled theaters, turned them into raucous dance halls during the musical numbers. This would often lead to the films being stopped and patrons ordered to stay in their seats. In addition, the film was limited from running seven days a week to ease the behavior of the enthusiastic teenagers. The film made the front pages of newspapers around the world, and in big bold type, the establishment formally acknowledged its fear and trepidation in the face of this new social revolution, nothing less than the invention of the modern teenager. In the Daily Sketch, a scary warning was delivered to parents, quote, don't just say tut tut and disgraceful and turn away. This affects you. It could easily be your son or daughter or niece or the nice boy next door who gets caught up in the maelstrom of this type of jazz. Come on, man. Right? Perhaps most threatening to the establishment of the time was Alan Freed's influence in showing white and black performers playing together, sharing the stage. This kind of integration was not at all common for the time, but in the world of rock and roll, became deeply associated with the music, as black performers were adored by white audiences, and white performers drew heavily on the influences of black music. The film was right at the forefront of the entire movement, and spawned not only a sequel, the much lesser Don't Knock the Rock, perhaps most notable for its impact on the career of Little Richard. Another film of the era was the big budget, The Girl Can't Help It. Elvis Presley would soon begin appearing in his own films, although his first, Love Me Tender, was a western and not really a music movie. He was soon appearing in Jailhouse Rock and King Creole, which were perfect examples of the genre. In 1961, Rock Around the Clock was remade with Chubby Checker and called Twist Around the Clock. That film spawned a sequel called, of course, Don't Knock the Twist. I feel like they were milking it at that point. I mean point was already made. Yeah, for sure. Perfectly, though, in the face of teenage exuberance and parental finger-wagging and brow-furrowing, no less a personality than Queen Elizabeth II requested that a copy of the film be delivered to her at Buckingham Palace for her own private viewing. This was incredibly uncommon, but the Queen's imagination was captured, and she wanted to hear and see what it was all about herself. Plus, she kind of rocked back then. Oh, totally. And with the Queen herself not coming out and condemning the film, but basically asking for her own private copy, rock and roll was alive and well and rooted in the UK. And we all know how great a thing that would lead to be. Awesome. What's the tale of the tape on this one, Sam? So we have a 6.2 on IMDb. Mm -hmm. The audience scores 47% on the Rotten Tomatoes. What? It won no awards. But it can be rented on Google Play and the Microsoft Store. Mm -hmm. We 
We open on the Columbia Pictures title card, and then we hear the intro to Rock Around the Clock, as still photographs introduce us to the musical acts we will see in the film. Bill Haley, The Platters, Tony Martinez, Freddie Bell and the Bellboys. This looks fantastic. It is a good lineup, no doubt. When the action begins, we are in some nameless city, at a dance hall, where the George Heller Orchestra plays to a mostly empty and very dead room. After his number, George's engagement gets cancelled, and Steve Hollis, his manager, explains that nowadays, the public wants sounds. Big bands are dead. Well, George fires Steve. Shoot the messenger there, George. Way to go. What a guy. Doesn't handle straight talk well, that one. George's bassist, Corny, he wants to go to New York with Steve. Can they work with Corrine Talbot, the big promoter? Who knows? Wait, did he just make a G-string joke? That seems a little risque for the time. This is rock and roll, kid. There's only one rule. There are no rules. I can dig that. The two engage on a days-long road trip before coming to a stop in a small mountaintop town called Strawberry Springs. The place seems filled with enthusiastic youngsters who say things like, Daddy-o, and, come on, Pop. The streets are filled with people, and everyone is going somewhere. That's because it is Saturday night, and you know what that means. The weekly dance at the Meeting Hall. A teenager boogie on a Saturday night, mm -hmm. <laughs> like in that song. Totally. But why are they dancing? Dancing is dead. That's what Steve told George. How can this be? That seems like a long time ago. As Steve and Corny try to wrap their heads around what they're hearing and seeing, they get admonished by the old motel owner who describes them as, them two cats don't dig the most at all. They go to the dance, since Steve wants to find out what the attraction is. Once they get there, they find out. Bill Haley and his Comets are playing. In fact, they are ripping it up, tearing it down, and rocking the joint. Corny and Steve try to make sense of the rock and roll music they are hearing. They describe it as not boogie, not jive, not swing. It's rock and roll, brother, some teenager explains. We get to see the first of many awesome dancing scenes. Everyone is dropping lingo and slang. It's crazy, man. Crazy. Steve is attracted by how everyone dances and thinks there might be money in this act. Always on the job. And we get a few fantastic performance numbers by Haley and the band. They were a really cool bunch to watch play. When asked by Steve to explain how they make the music they do, Haley describes that they just play the music upside down. Steve wants to book the Comets and give them to the world, including some of the kids who dance with them, swinging siblings Lisa and Jimmy Johns. Corny is skeptical, but Steve is convinced that the Comets can get everyone dancing again. But... They will have to deal with Corrine Talbot. She books everywhere from New York to L.A. There's some backstory to you i got to give you now. She wants to marry Steve, and Steve has spurned her in the past. There is tension. Steve and Lisa negotiate over fees, and although they are attracted to each other, Lisa hardlines Steve and secures a 75-25 cut for the band. Steve goes and sees Corrine. She wanted to marry him and make him a partner in the largest entertainment firm in America. And this is a standing offer. But Steve is really not interested. He's not one to appreciate a strong, self-made woman who has dazzling success at the highest levels of a male-dominated industry, I guess. And yet, she's just using that success to try to land a man. This part hasn't aged well. 
At a nightclub, the Tony Martinez band does a number. They're sort of a Cuban mambo rhythm band with lots of percussion. They're very showy and fun. The crowd likes it, but nobody is dancing, man. Hey, Steve knows what these squares need. Green wants to book the Comets, but not the dancers, since she suspects that she should be jealous of Lisa. And thus, our romantic triangle begins to unfold. Green plans to book the Comets at the prom of a hoity-toity girls' school, along with Martinez. She fully expects the unrefined wild rock band to fall flat on their face. She is setting them up to fail. Her plan is that this will break Steve's spirit and bring him crawling back to her. But there is a flaw in her reasoning. She is sending a rock and roll band to a venue full of repressed teenagers. Rich teenagers. And when Steve returns to lay out the deal for the band, Corny has discovered another group, Freddie Bell and the Bellboys. Now with two groups and a dance pair, they have a full review. We cut to the Mansfield School for Girls on prom night. Martinez plays slow and classy music, and their stage show is very restrained. They have been told to play no exciting music. The band looks miserable, but the old people supervising the prom nod approvingly while sipping from their china teacups. The Comets come out and play razzle-dazzle, but the room is dead. Everyone is terrified, so Lisa and Jimmy start to dance, and the other kids all join in. The Comets are a hit, and Corrine is pissed. Business is picking up. Next, Freddie Bell and the Bellboys perform. Their energy and stage show is incredible, and their bass player, really, really good. I love that kind of croony singing style, and a rock and roll sound built around bass guitar and horns. It's really cool. Real gone. Feeling left out, Martinez and band decide to put the cha back in their cha-cha, <laughs> and their next number is way more interesting and energetic. I love them so much. Corrine, however, is not impressed, and she shoots the band down, refusing to give them other bookings. I think she's a little obsessed with Steve, and it's clouding her judgment. Oh yeah. Two weeks later, the Comets are broke, and they can't get booked. But one night on the radio, they hear Alan Freed. Now, it turns out Steve lent Alan Freed $1,000 years ago to put on a show, and they think that it now is the time to call in that favor and get booked through him. We see the Platters perform Only You on Freed's show. They're a really great vocal group. And this brings us to a moment in the film that caused a real controversy, with white audiences watching a black performing group. In mid-50s America, this kind of integration was still problematic in many parts of the country. Things turn to the better for the Comets, though. Alan Freed makes it happen. The song Rock Around the Clock hits audiences and takes everything by storm. Corrine's agency is beset by requests for rock and roll bands. Her assistant, Mike, who loves her, tries to cajole her to book the Comets. But she still wants to strong-arm Steve. Corrine is such a conniving little sneak. Oh, yeah. She meets with Steve to offer a three-year deal, which he agrees to. But then she meets with Lisa, explaining that her value in sex appeal means she has to not get married for the length of the contract. Lisa agrees. The contract signed, the review goes on tour, and rock and roll sweeps the nation, and dancing is back, baby. The dead dance floors of the beginning of the film, they're a thing of the past. I wonder what happened to George. He really got left out. Showbiz is a tough racket. You gotta change with the times or get left behind. 
Steve envisions a televised special, Coast to Coast, a huge rock and roll concert jamboree. And this is such a good idea that the film just fast forwards to it. And at the show, Corrine and Steve make a kind of peace between them. Alan Freed hosts the show, and we get treated to a series of incredible numbers. Oh, I'll say. The bellboys are up first, playing a tune called Giddy Up. Then the platters sing The Great Pretender. But then the main event. Bill Haley and his comets hit the stage. Those jackets. And they launch into a wild instrumental called Rudy's Rock. These guys are awesome. Mm -hmm. That was an amazing number. I smiled all the way through it. At the end of the concert, Lisa speaks to the audience and announces that she has married Steve. And it turns out they were married before the contract was ever signed. So Corrine can't sue or breach the contract. Oh, Corrine. Never lucky in love. She decided to marry one of her employees, Mike. So he gets a happy ending too. And the movie comes to a close with the words, The Living End, up on screen. So hip. My toes were tapping that whole movie. Fingers snapping, bouncing in my seat, the whole thing. I know, it was great. Let's do pros and cons. Okay, well, here are my pros. Number one, the music. The film does an excellent job of capturing the energy and excitement of the early days of rock and roll. The wild dancing, the teenage rebellion, like the heroes of Olympus walking among mortals but wailing on horns and guitars. While not every song is a classic, every performance number in the movie is a knock-it-out-of-the-park, jump-out-of-your-seat thrill. This is my favorite genre of music, and this film documents exactly why. 2. Giving Alan Freed and Bill Haley roles as characters in the film. Neither men were actors, but they both did well, and having them speak dialogue lent credibility to their roles. The role that each man plays in the history of rock and roll is quite significant, so to have these fictionalized versions of themselves, played by themselves, is a real treat. And three, the storytelling. There's a fantastic parable that is told here. The writers have effectively taken the story of Prometheus, exchanged fire for rock and roll, and had Steve bring something very special down from a mysterious and isolated mountaintop to give to the people below. And once the spark is lit, everything changes, and the world is never the same. To infuse the history of rock and roll with such mythological significance is an incredible stroke, whether by design or by accident. Joseph Campbell would be proud. Now my cons. The love story with Corrine is just too much. She is too Cruella de Vil here, always cackling and scheming and trying to break Steve. It's a bad look on her, and casts a successful and self-made businesswoman in a horrible and sexist light, and it adds very little to the film. Horny. He's never really needed as a character, and is just there early in the film to give Steve someone to talk to. Once things get rolling, Corny is marginalized greatly, and by the time of the final jamboree, he's not shown at all. And lastly, the runtime. This movie could have been an hour longer, filled with more music, and no one would have minded. Except the squares, daddy-o, because they weren't hip to the sounds. This is such a watch for me. If you love the music of this era, it will be for you as well. It doesn't matter if the plot is thin or the acting weak. It's a movie that looks and sounds great. And I have no problem imagining the incredible enthusiasm it must have generated in audiences of the day. This is my new number two on our master list. 
If it was better acted, it would easily be number one. But as it is, two. Awesome. You're up. Okay, so my pros. One, the music and dancing. Holy crap, was the music great. Every band was excellent, and the song choices were incredible. I couldn't stop bopping along the entire time. And the dancing was so cool to watch. All of the little in-sync steps, kicks, and jumps are super impressive. Two, Corrine Talbot. I didn't really like her weird obsession with Steve. It was a bit too much, but I thought she was a pretty cool character. She was funny, smart, and really sneaky. Plus, considering the time, I thought it was cool that a woman was the owner of the leading talent managing agency in the film. 3. Tony Martinez and his band. Their first performance was a whole show to watch. They were super upbeat and happy when playing what they wanted to, but when they had to play boring music, they were all grumpy and pouty. They were really funny and great to watch. But also, all of the bands were equally great. Bill Haley and the Comets, of course. The Platters. Freddie Bell and the Bellboys. Just fantastic. My cons. 1. The romance between Steve and Lisa. It seemed really rushed. Like they got together a day after they met. Plus, their relationship essentially only started because they were haggling over how much of the money Steve should get. There was no actual connection or anything. Or at least we weren't shown any. And then they were just all of a sudden together. 2. The timeline. I was a bit confused about how long everything took. Sometimes it felt like there was only a day between scenes, and other times it was months. It wasn't really that bad, but at times it confused me a little bit. 3. Mike and Corny. Neither of them served much purpose at all. They didn't further the plot or add any useful information. Corny was just there for Steve to talk to, and Mike was just there for Corrine to talk to. But this is absolutely a watch from me. Such a fun movie. Okay. And where do you rank it overall? It's really close, but probably number two. Well, that, as they say, settles that. And with that is the end of another episode. If you liked this episode, be sure to let us know all about it in the comments below. Do you have a favorite musician or song from this era? Maybe something by Elvis. Chuck Berry? Buddy Holly? Little Richard? Jerry Lee Lewis? Anyone. Tell us about it. We'd love to know. And as always, if you liked what you heard today, don't be shy about letting other people know that. We aren't a secret, so be sure to take a moment to spread the word about this podcast. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. You never know. They might dig that crazy scene as much as you do. Maybe even more. For Sam the Sidekick, I'm Derek, and I love old movies. Sound effects used for I Love Old Movies, the podcast, come from freefx.co.uk. Images are found through the Creative Commons. And our theme song, Burning Bridges, comes from The Crux.